All right, if you'll take your Bibles with me and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew, the seventh chapter, as we uh, conclude our uh, study here of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, we come to the, the end of chapter 7. They are words that many of us are already familiar with. Uh, in fact, uh, many of us sung little songs as children that came from these closing words uh, here in Matthew chapter 7. But as familiar as they may be, we should never forget that they are also profoundly serious. Have you ever been advised on how to do something from a very knowledgeable person, but then you went on and did it your own way? I think you can all relate to that. And as a result, it didn't work out so well. Well, there wasn't anything wrong with your ears, of course. Uh, you heard the advice perfectly and even understood what it was that you were supposed to do. And the real problem was with your will. As I often told uh, my children, I told my students many times when I was teaching, it's not that you cannot, it's that you will not. You didn't do what you heard to do. I'm reminded of that kind of situation when I read this morning's passage, except when it comes to the matter of what Jesus speaks about, the danger of hearing without doing becomes much more serious. Look at this passage with me and let's read. Uh, you follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read beginning in verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I want you to look, first of all, in verse 24, at that word, therefore. The word points our attention back to all that Jesus has said to us in this sermon. It marks off what he has, uh, is about to say, really as his concluding remarks to all that he had just finished saying. Uh, Jesus even makes that very clear to us when he says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, or these words of mine, and before we go any further, we want to make three observations. First of all, I want to remind you of the whole context of these words. The whole context. The context is the whole sermon. Not just bits and pieces of it. One of the great traps that people often fall into when looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, or listening to it or reading it is that they pick out and they quote their favorite portions. And then they ignore the other parts, maybe because they don't like them. But here Jesus is calling us to put into action all of what He said. You know, everyone... Uh, almost everyone has certain portions, perhaps, of the Sermon on the Mount they really like, such as the Beatitudes in chapter 5, or the so-called Lord's Prayer in chapter 6, 
or our Lord's instructions about not worrying about our lives, what we should eat or what we should drink or what we should wear in chapter 6. Even unbelieving people appreciate these portions. Uh, But many of the same people who say they like those portions will also strongly dislike other portions as uh, His command that strictly limits divorce or His words that forbid our doing righteous deeds to be seen or praised by men or His stern warning to enter through the narrow gate and travel on the difficult way that leads to life. And Jesus, when He says, Therefore, these sayings of Mine takes away our ability to pick and choose the portions we like and ignore the rest. What He is about to say applies to all of His words in the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first thing, the whole context. Secondly, I want you to notice how this shows the vital relationship. The vital relationship with Himself that involved in these words. Jesus doesn't simply say, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings, rather, He's very specific. He says, these sayings of Mine. In fact, in the original language, the word translated of Mine is a very emphatic, in a very emphatic position. He is stressing the relation these words have to Himself. They are His words, and He cannot be separated from them. Many people in the past you know, have admired Jesus' sermon as teaching a pure system of ethics in an abstract sense. One that can be drawn from and applied to life apart from a relationship by faith in Him. One of the most famous individuals to attempt to do this was a great Russian novelist by the name of Leo Tolstoy. He sought to build his life around the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount but without having a personal relationship by faith with the one who gave the sermon. And he reached the end of his life with a sense of frustration and failure. Others have attempted to do the same thing, but this cannot be done. Jesus makes himself a vital part of all that he says in this sermon. He made it all dependent upon his own authority. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Chapter 5, verse 17. He kept saying saying uh, things like this. He said, Ye have heard it said by them of old time, but I say unto you. And even the people who heard him, as we read there, were, uh, were astonished as he taught them as one of having authority and not as one of the scribes. You know, the scribes, they simply quoted their scholars. But Jesus didn't quote anyone else. The scribes' teaching, it was copied, but His was original and depended upon His own identity as the Son of God. In fact, if Jesus were not the very Son of God, then the words He speaks in this morning's passage would stand out as among the most arrogant and most prideful words ever spoken. Can you imagine someone saying this without the authority of being the Son of God? He said that a wise man is the man who does does what he says in this sermon. And a foolish man, doomed to destruction and final ruin, is the man who does 
not do what he says in the sermon. But Jesus makes this claim because he himself inseparably is central to his teaching. His words of teaching in this sermon cannot be properly understood or applied apart from a vital relationship with himself through faith. And I really must stress the importance of this. Uh, And here's the reason why. We must not think that we can simply just pick out bits and pieces of God's Word, the things that we like, and and then ignore the things that we don't like. We can't just simply take bits and pieces out of the sermon and try to apply them to our lives as if we can make ourselves acceptable unto God by obeying them. You know, a part of the teaching of this sermon is the fact that we cannot obey them on our own power. Jesus' standard is established in chapter 5 and verse 20 when he said that except your righteousness should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus hints at this even further when he says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. You know, that means that none of us can make ourselves acceptable to God by obeying the Sermon on the the Mount. But this reminds us that one of the things that Jesus teaches in this sermon is that righteousness before God comes as a result of seeking it as a gift of God's grace. Jesus told us at the very beginning, He said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It comes not to those who earn it, because you cannot earn it, but to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they do not have, and who then cry out to God for it. They seek it as a gift, and they're given the gift of righteousness by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And then having received the gift of Jesus' own righteousness by faith, they go on to follow Him in a life of obedience. Not in order to earn righteousness before God, but because it has already been given to them as a free gift. Righteousness is a gift of God's grace that comes through a personal relationship by faith with Christ. It comes to those whom Jesus says, I know you. As we looked at last Sunday, some are going to come before Him and they're going to say, see all the things that I did, all the works that I did, I prophesied in your name, I did many wonderful works, and He's going to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, Jesus' teaching about this vital relationship is one of the things that's implied in His words, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. There's a third observation here. We, will notice, uh, we should notice how the words, therefore, whosoever hear these, these sayings of mine, shows an unavoidable obligation. An unavoidable obligation that's involved here. This is because he goes on to say, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Many people simply won't read the Bible. They will often say that it's because it's not very interesting. And yet this cannot be the case because they will gladly give themselves over to a multiple of 
uh, other things that are far less interesting than the words spoken to them by the God of the universe. Or other people will say, uh, they don't read the Bible because it's too hard to understand. And yet this can't be true either. Because the same people will spend many hours studying complicated tax information or instruction manuals or how to operate some sophisticated computer software. Uh, Some people say, I can't read the Bible because I just don't have time. And yet they have lots of time for other things in their lives that are far less important. And I've come to the conclusion about all this. The real reason that people who know that they should read their Bibles and they won't do so is because it's too dangerous to read the Bible. You know, it's dangerous because it demands that you do something about what you've read. You have to obey it and apply it to your life. And the truth presented to us in God's Word is not simply to read but it's to put into practice. It's something to be acted upon. The Apostle John said, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. It meant to be, it's meant to be practiced. John said, He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The Apostle James said, but be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The Lord did not speak the words He spoke in the Sermon on the Mount in order to give us some pretty sayings and some quotes to be admired. He didn't uh, say that we needed some uh, nice words for our refrigerator magnets or to be printed on a coffee mug. He meant for these words to be translated into action. And these words that Jesus speaks at the conclusion of the sermon make this abundantly clear. Once we hear these words, we make ourselves into fools if we do not do them and do what they say. Now I'd say this Sermon on the Mount is the most decisive sermon ever preached, wouldn't you? In these closing words, Jesus presents to us an analogy. He uses the picture of two men building two houses as a way of teaching us the importance of putting words into practice. Look at these two men and notice, first of all, the similarities. The similarities. Now, I notice that in Jesus' picture, the two men who are engaged here actually in the same activity. They are both building houses. We are told of no difference between the houses that they're building. For all we know, the houses may have looked exactly alike. And we're not told of anything different between the abilities of the two men to build their houses. For all we know, they may have had been both excellent craftsmen as far as their work on the superstructure of the house goes. And furthermore, it even appears that they built their houses in the 
kind of the same sort of location. Apparently the same sort of natural forces struck these two houses. And what's more, these two builders are symbolic of two kinds of people. The thing that they have in common is that they both uh, hear Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Both of them heard exactly the same words from exactly the same Lord. Now when I think of these similarities, I can't help but think of the similarities there are between those who are truly Christians and those who are so-called Christians in just name only. It sometimes is hard to tell them apart. They both go to church, they hear the same sermons, they attend the same Bible classes, and often they both study and read the Bible on their own. They bow their heads at the same prayers. And often they even say prayers in much the same way. They talk the same kind of talk. They profess the same kind of doctrines. And what's more, as we've learned from Jesus' words back in verses 21 to 23, they even both profess to know the Lord. There are many similarities between a false Christian and a true one. Both of the houses that they're building look the same. But that points our attention to, secondly, the differences. The differences. The differences are not readily seen, but they're there. And they're profound. In the case of Jesus' analogy, the main difference is found in what the houses are resting on. That's not something that you can necessarily see just by looking at the house on a superficial level. By all outward appearances, the house may look the same, but that's because you can't see the foundation of the house just by looking. As it turns out, one man's house, the wise man's house, was founded upon solid rock, while the other man's house, the foolish man's, was founded upon sand. And again, Jesus' analogy is meant to illustrate two kinds of people with respect to his teaching. Both men heard Jesus' words, and on a superficial level, the differences between them cannot be readily seen. But on a closer examination, one man heard what Jesus said and then did what Jesus said, while the other man heard what Jesus said and did not do what Jesus said. Both men acted out from out of their own will based on what they heard, but one chose to take action and the other did not. The man who did what Jesus said had built his life on a good, solid foundation while the other had built his life on that which would not endure. As I read this, I, wondered, I wonder why it might be that someone would be so foolish as to ignore the need for a good foundation when building a house. Now I can suggest several reasons. One reason might be because they were only concerned to get the house up for the sake of appearance. For the sake of appearance. And that lasts only for a short term. I suspect that this might be why many merely professing Christians have built their lives without a foundation of obedience to Jesus' words. Oh, they go to the places that a Christian goes, They say the things that a Christian says and they read the things that a Christian reads, but they are doing it simply for appearance sake. They didn't really mean to be followers of Jesus because that requires doing what He said. 
They just wanted to look like a follower of Jesus without being concerned with whether or not they were really our followers of Jesus. Now I suspect another reason someone might ignore the need of a good foundation is because they are in too much of a hurry. Too much of a hurry to build. They felt the pressing need to get the house up quickly. And similarly, many people are hoping for Christianity to be a quick fix. They aren't concerned about the long-term commitment of being a disciple so much as they are about getting certain problems in their life taken care of in a hurry. They don't realize that a true Christian faith is something that shows its benefits over the long haul. It involves a daily walk with Jesus in which He said in His time and in His way deals with the problems. Many don't want to wait for such a foundation to be laid because real Christian faith requires learning to wait on the Lord as we do what He says. I suspect another reason that someone would ignore the need for a good foundation is it takes too much work. Too much work to establish a foundation. It's not the attractive part of the job. You know, laying a good foundation involves removing some rocks and some trees and leveling out some land. It involves a lot of careful planning, a lot of dirty work. Similarly, I suggest that many don't want to lay the foundation of a real Christian life because it requires too much effort, too much of a demand, uh, too much of a cost. Jesus said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. For some, the demands of laying a true foundation for the Christian life is more than they wish to pay. Because it requires that we follow Him and do what He says. It requires laying down one's life and taking up one's own cross and following Him. And so they don't bother to lay a foundation at all. I would have to say that some people don't build a foundation for the Christian life because they don't like what the foundation must be. In the end, the foundation is a person who demands to be our Lord as well as our Savior. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ whose death on the cross shows how God feels about our sin. Paul said, For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul said that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Many, as I've suggested before, want to have the teachings of Jesus without the Jesus of teachings. They want to be in control of their own Christian lives. Do not wish to relinquish complete control of their lives to the Lord. And the Bible says the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner. 1 Peter 2.7 And yet many have rejected the only foundational stone that they could possibly build on and they seek to build anyway. Now the types of foundation of the two houses may be somewhat hidden from view. 
but it's not that they are completely hidden. The fact is, they can be known. Look at how that they're proven. They're proven by the trials of rain and the floodwaters and of the wind. You know, a lot of preachers have sought symbolism in these different things. I don't know uh, if the Lord meant to be uh, these to mean specific things, but I think the best view of these pictures are the trials of life in general. God permits the trials of life to come into every believer's life in order to prove the genuineness of their foundation. And I don't think there's a person here this morning who would not agree with me that life has its trials and life has its problems. Peter says that we are to greatly rejoice in our hope in Christ, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The world looks on and they see the difference. And we can look and we can see the difference too. You know when someone's foundation is on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's how they handle the trials and the difficulties. Well, that leads us then to, thirdly, the results. And the results are dramatic. When the trials of rain, of floodwaters and winds, strike against the house that is built on the sand, the house falls. And Jesus said, and great was the fall of it. Meaning a terrible crash. Just like we, when we sang the song as little children, we tried to make that crash as loud as we could. It was a terrible crash. A complete downfall. A total and final ruin. I think here of the parable that Jesus uh, told in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16, He said, And He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentiful. And He thought within Himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And He said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, great and ruinous is the fall of the house not built on Christ. This is not only true during the time of trial, but it's true in an ultimate sense as well. That's a horrible thing to think about. But let's not forget to think about the other house. The other house, it stands. The trials of the rain and the flood and the wind did not bring it down because it was built on solid rock. And what's more, it'll stand at the day of judgment. One man is wise, the other is a fool. The only difference between them is that one heard the words of Jesus and did them, and the other heard the same words and did not do them. 
And it's because this is a matter of how the houses are founded. The difference isn't something that can be seen in a superficial way, but the difference can be known. In fact, I believe the whole reason Jesus is saying all this is because the difference can be known now. We don't have to wait till Judgment Day. We can do something about it today. We can know where we stand if we truly want to. We can know whether or not we're a mere professing Christian or we're a real, genuine believer. We can know if we will fall apart on the day of trial or if we'll stand. We can know if we'll be rejected on the day of judgment or we'll enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, look at verse 28 and 29. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine or His teaching. For He taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. His audience could not but notice that Jesus taught with the authority that the other teachers of His day lacked, who would often quote their rabbis for their authority. Jesus spoke with inherent authority and the authority of God's revealed Word. The people were astonished at His teachings. And whenever God's Word is presented as it truly is, with its inherent power, I believe it will astonish people. It will set itself apart from the mere opinions of man. When we really understand Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount, we should be astonished as well. If we aren't, then we probably haven't really heard or understood what Jesus has said. Now Jesus' whole point in all of this is to help us to know how we can examine ourselves to see where we stand. And this is the test. Do you, as a practice of your life, have your faith in Jesus and what He says and do what He says? If you are building your Christian life on a foundation that will last, if you say that you have faith in Jesus Christ, but as a regular practice of your life, you follow other things than Christ, if you hear His teaching but do not do what He says, then you're not building on the foundation that will last. Your foundation will be tested. Not a person in here will not go through some kind of trial or testing. There are three ways, I believe, uh, it will be tested. It will be tested in the time of trial, of course. We've mentioned that. It will be tested on the day of judgment. And it will be tested right now by your own self-examination. As you know your heart this morning, did you know that the Bible calls you to test yourself? Paul says, examine yourselves. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates. Now those are hard words to be sure. Nobody wants to be called a reprobate. But if you're just a professing Christian, if you're the person that hears the words of Jesus, but you don't do them, no one likes to be called a fool, but that's what Jesus says you are. If you're not building your foundation upon the solid rock, 
Even though you call yourself a Christian, you're a reprobate. Those are hard words. But I know even harder ones. We saw them back in our passage last week. It's when Jesus will say to you, who profess to be Christians and who are not, he'll say, I never knew you. That will be really hard. So I ask you to ask yourself now, when you still have the opportunity to do so, what is my foundation? Upon what is my life built? Is my trust in the cross of Jesus Christ? Is, my, is that my vital trust right now and in an ongoing way? Is He my cornerstone? When I pick up my Bible and I read what it says to do, do I faithfully do it? Perhaps I fail at times, but then do I get right back and go forward again in obedience with trust in His forgiveness and His help? Do I find Christ, His person, His commandments, His promises to be my mainstay in times of trial? Do, or do the trials cause me to fall apart? Do I find myself increasingly standing strong in them through the strength Christ supplies? Or do I find myself increasingly turning away from what God has given to me and turning to lesser things? There are only two foundations. My question this morning is, which one are you resting on? Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a serious question that we've asked this morning. It's a question of either being a fool or a wise man, according to what Jesus has said. It's a question that it's a matter of life or death, eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And Lord, I pray as we search our hearts and examine our hearts this morning that we'll find which foundation we're building upon. There's someone here to, this morning perhaps who says, oh yes, I'm in church and I'm a professing Christian. I do Christian things. I, I do all that I need to do. But they have no lasting relationship with you and they oftentimes do not do the things that your word says. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would work in their hearts to help them to know that they need to have a solid foundation based upon what Jesus Christ did for them on Calvary's cross. His shed blood. Lord, I pray if there's someone here this morning without Christ as their personal Savior, maybe they're trusting their good works, maybe they're trusting their family, their church attendance, whatever it is they're trusting, but they're not trusting you. I pray today would be the day of their salvation. And Lord, I pray also for those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Help us, Lord, to not only hear the words, but do what you've told us to say. Do what you've said. Lord, speak to our hearts concerning our hearts' needs this morning. And we pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God will 
work amongst us. And we pray, Lord, that uh, your will would be done, your name would be glorified. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your songbooks and turn with me to 462. 462. And as we stand and as we sing on that first verse, God spoke in your heart and you have a need this morning, we invite you to come. Oh, safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I am hiding in thee. On that first verse, God spoken to you. You come, kneel here in prayer. Come do business with God, we trust as we sing. <laughs>